Hello everybody and welcome to the No BS Spiritual Book Club's live video series and joining me today to share the stories behind the 10 books which influenced him the most on his life journey is author, educator, musician, beach boy performer, inventor, multiple near-death experiencer and developer of quantum code technology Robert O. Williams who is considered one of the world's foremost experts in subtle energy engineering and technology. Robert Williams, welcome. Thank you very much, Sandy. It's a pleasure to be on your show. And it's a pleasure to have you. So I know that one of the first books that you read all the way through was one of my favorites, which was The Hobbit. Um, tell us how you, you know, what is your relationship with books? My relationship with books had a rocky beginning when I was growing up because um, I was seeing all kinds of things clairvoyantly. I was born with a enlarged pineal gland. I didn't know this until about 10 years ago. They did a, some scans on my brain and everything and they saw this pineal gland being enlarged, which um, conventionally is responsible for some hormones and things. but Metaphysically, it has to do with the third eye. So I grew up, so it's a genetic defect. <laughs> and, I, and I was seeing things that other people weren't seeing all the time. And so to focus on a book, I would just get so distracted that it was very difficult for me to read, especially the books in, in the early days, you know, the, you know, Mary chases the dog and it's, it just wasn't enough for me to focus. And then um, the Hobbit came along and the Hobbit was so full of imagination. But at the time it was so real to me because it matched in a sense, the world that I was living where beings were not just uh, re regulated, excuse me, were not just regulated to human beings and then animals. There were all these different kinds of, you know, the elves and the, and the different, uh, the trees and all of that matched my experience of my, of my reality. So I couldn't put the Hobbit down. And that got me onto reading. Uh, I read the whole trilogy, of course, after the Hobbit and, uh, it, it, it really uh, then positioned my relationship with books properly because I got into past the words into the author's intention and, and uh, artistic expression. And so then I, I did a lot of catching up and started reading like crazy. You said um, that your parents uh didn't really believe the stories that you were telling them about the things you could see. Did you feel that books was the one safe place you could go to know that you weren't insane? Yeah, well, especially The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings. Because um, I believed that that was a true story. I believe that J.R.R. Tolkien was uh, hiding behind the truth by calling the book fiction and that it was a real re reality 
and that uh, it was a safe place for me. I also found other places that were safe. Like I dug this big hole in my backyard and I would sit down there and just look up at the sky and the trees. And uh, in nature was always safe. Uh, so yes, books, uh, books were a safe place for me. And yes, as I continued to read good books, um, uh, I just loved the, I loved the, you know, like I was a late bloomer, as I said, with reading, and I loved the idea of an author creating words that painted a picture that were beyond the words, that created a reality that wasn't limited to the English language, that the mind was able to then superimpose its own experience and its own um, context within reality along with the authors. And so there is this co-creative, there is this co-creative process with reading more than just watching a movie because they've got everything, you know, movies are great too. But with a book, you're, you're filling in how that character looks like and how the environment and what's going on. That's your imagination that's filling in and matching the author's intention. And I thought that was just a marvelous uh, dialogue with self, with, a, you know, a, a, another human being, but also with my own self. It's, yeah, I mean, it's such a, an experiential experience. Whereas, you know, and the experience of watching a movie is quite passive. Yes. Yeah. Yes, it's, it, it, there's a big difference. Yes. I'm, I'm a fan of movies too, but you can, you can, people know that you're more engaged with a good book because mm -hmm. of what I said. This is, you have to fill in the between the letters, the between the words, and all of that is your, your opportunity for co-creating a story. Where, yeah, you could do that a little bit with movies, you know, mm -hmm. what's really the character, what's unsaid and so forth. But I really uh, see that with uh, literature. You, you've said that the books that you've chosen, the 10, have gone deeply into your consciousness and really helped you live. But, you know, I'm sure there were more than 10. So how easy or how challenging was it for you to come up with 10 that really helped you live? It was quite a challenge. You know, I, I, I meditated. I remembered The Hobbit. I, well, everybody's read that, you know. And so, yes, I highly recommend the Hobbit and the Lord of the Rings, but then I wanted to offer something that perhaps wasn't so widespread uh, in, in known, wasn't, wasn't so known in a widespread way. So the first book I chose was the, um, the book by Richard Moss. Black Butterfly. Black Butterfly. An Invitation to Radical Aliveness. Yes. Mm. So that book, where Richard Moss, short story behind Richard Moss, he was a medical doctor, went through the whole medical thing, became part of the AMA and started practicing in the hospital. And one, one morning he walked in and he looked at the patient and he saw something deeper than a physical being or a human being, he saw into their consciousness. And he felt this amazing energy in his body and his hands. And he put his hand on the patient and the patient got better. So this had 
very nothing, very little to do with conventional medical doctor stuff. So then he took a, a sabbatical. He took time away from the hospital and he was wondering about this whole phenomenon of the, the sudden awakening of a person's depth, a person's life beyond the chem panels and the and, the, and the, the notes that had been taken in the blood pressure and so forth. And it was very profound for him. So he was walking in the woods and he, something caught his attention and he turned and he saw this black butterfly flying and it landed in a tree, on a tree right next to him. And somehow nature's miracles and it just seemed to, um, connect all the dots for Richard Moss. And he then changed his career. He wrote that book. What's so amazing about the book is he realized that we are not individuals only. We are primarily a collective consciousness showing individual attributes. We have our individualities, we have our personalities, we have our own stories but there is a collective phenomenon going on that if we are aware of that collection of parts and we realize that ultimately there is wholeness in humanity, then it changes your relationship, not only to yourself, but to others. And you begin to understand the interconnectedness with nature as well. And so the book, he just talks about that radical awakening. It's, awake, it's, it's a sudden and radical awakening of reality that is part of the whole. And the parts can be nourished by the whole or can be affected by the whole in negative senses when you look at mass conscious thought forms and and, and uh, the ignorance of uh, humans to a certain degree where we believe we have to fight each other to get what we think we want, need or want, or we have to hurt somebody else because of our own pain. It gets into that as well. But he, he writes it in, a, in the context that we are awakening as a collective consciousness on this planet. So that's that was, uh, very powerful for me because it was also my experience after right after my near-death experience I mean moments after and then after I left the entertainment industry and went into nature and and literally began growing sprouts and seeing what was happening uh, with the ecology of of everything and and that it resonated, the book resonated with my own experience quite, quite deeply. Mm, you said in your write-up that um, you read it and begun to fully incarnate, perhaps for the first time in my life. Yes, because it was, it was a, the, each sentence has a root to it. It has a root into the earth. Uh, and, and it, you know, it doesn't, it's one of these books where you can open up to any page and just read a few sentences mm. and it, and it, root, it rooted me. It, it's not a metaphysical where you're way out 
thinking of the Pleiades or something, you're right in the earth and you, our bodies are earth. And so therefore I felt that incarnation, that, that wholeness, including my own body and my own root into the earth. Mm. Book number two follows on very nicely, The Untethered Soul by Michael A. Singer. This is one that does pop up quite often. Um, mm -hmm. the, yeah, a lot of people seem to have had amazing experiences with this book. You can always tell when a person is writing from their heart, you know, and the author is living their work. And that's what I got with, with that untethered soul. And the, uh, the whole topic of how we, if we're, if we're not questioning ourselves, meditating, becoming self-aware, we can be tethered. We can be, uh, we, we can find ourselves in a situation life situation that is limited, that is bound, that has a boundary around it. I can only do so much, says that level of my uh, lower vibrational self. I am limited. I have, I, I am bound. And we are bound to this destiny or this reality. Whereas what he, what he does is he speaks from a uh, a liberation of that, the untethered soul, the, the, the free creative intelligence that we all have as our birthright and the creative intelligence as we have to, uh, as an opportunity to co-create our destiny, similar to the other comment I made. So I just, I just love that book for that quality. Mm -hmm. Book number three, I was uh, surprised to see this and very happy to see it too. The Way of the Superior Man, David Dada, a spiritual guide to mastering the challenges of women, work and sexual desire. Now, I've read a few of his books and um, I've really enjoyed them. So tell me what it was about this particular book that influenced you. Oh, at some point, in society, men or the masculine essence, I'll just say men, um, became, uh, lost their opportunity for an initiation into manhood. Now, if you look at the indigenous cultures, I have part Cherokee in me. So I like, I studied the Cherokee. So when a, when a boy, reaches a certain age. It's not just a numeric age, it's a certain a sign of, of maturity and adolescence and they had their way of, you know, he's ready. And when that boy reaches that place of his own development, he goes through an initiation into manhood. His name changes, there's, there's more benefits. He finds his place in society and it's not it's not um, just what daddy says, it's what the society has deemed him in terms of his role. And that's where the new name, like 
uh, cloud chaser or whatever, they see his special contribution to society. Now, we've lost that. So most men are still carrying their fathers around with them. And they're carrying all of the other stuff that comes with that related to dad. You know, his childhood and maybe his trauma from maybe my father fought in World War II. And so to release oneself from that uh, bondage, from that strong influence is directly addressed in the way of the superior man. Superior man, he's talking about men among men, not superior to a woman. In fact, that, that, it's just the opposite. Mm. We, are, we are moving into an age where the divine feminine, where the feminine essence uh, is rightfully taking its position in society. It hasn't completed yet, as we all know too well, but that's the direction and he addresses that. So how does a man, that's what he calls the superior man, the man who has, has recognized the value and the time we're in where the feminine essence is served and the feminine essence is regarded as the one who knows how the whole works together. That's a feminine quality. We all have feminine and masculine inside of us. It's our feminine quality. And so he, he hits several nails right on the head. Okay, what do you do with your sexuality? What if you are, if you see a beautiful woman and it's not your wife, what do you do with that energy? Men are confused. They don't know what to do. They, they deny it or they fantasize it. They go, there's, he, he dresses it right on. This is what you do with that energy. And I can tell you if you want, but it's in the book and there's all kinds of, um, very specific advice, even breathing techniques and ways to walk and hold one's posture. And that unleashes, similar to the untethered soul, it unleashes the essence of what being a man is all about, what being a masculine essence is in society. Very powerful book. Mm, it is a powerful book. And it's something that I think every woman should read. I agree. Um, yeah, yes. absolutely. I mean, you get to understand a lot about men. And, you know, of course, what you're talking about is rites of passage. And, and we've lost those in society today. Men have lost them. Women still have them, naturally. You know, pu yes. the puberty and motherhood. It's, it's very tangible experiences. Yes. Um, but for men, it's much more subtle than that. And it doesn't happen. And I think it gets, it's, you know, it's been replaced with... Um, you know, football and men talking about, you know, competition. Um, I'm, you know, a better man than you because I earn more money or I'm further up the career ladder or, you know, my team beat your team. It's, it's yeah, it has really been um, hijacked. I absolutely agree. Well said. Mm. I agree. So that book really, it's, it's a radical book in and of itself because it yes. goes right in there and says, you are not a superior man if you are obsessed with or if if the if the sunday football game or is 
is the goal of your life from week to week. And I, I exaggerate, of course, and there's a lot of great men doing great things. But you know, the motive that causes, that is at the root of high level competition, the, the motive at that state of consciousness is the motive to become free from dad. And because we always feel like dad is in our subconscious mind superior to us and we're trying to become equal to him. And so it's a, it's a physical, is a physiological response to that, to go out and, you know, not only competition watching football, but I've got to make the most money or I've got to win the, you know, I've got to go out and kill at the stock market and all these things. Mm -hmm. There's, I'm not saying those things are bad, but the, the, the context, if realigned with a, uh, a connection with the divine masculine makes it all appropriate. And it doesn't degrade or step or, or, or stample over anybody. Mm. You know, it includes, this is a cooperative. It, again, the indigenous cultures knew this. Yeah. And the Cherokees would, would wait for the priestess, would wait for the, the female, the elder female. And she would say, it's now time to hunt. And then the warriors would then, and she did prayers and it was all part of the ecosystem. She got, she got permission from the buffalo spirits and it was all very beautiful, the, the, the hunting. And so of course, hunting is like, you know, similar to the competition. We wanna, you know, we have a goal. We wanna get the buffalo or the deer or whatever. There's similarities there to something that is uh, appropriate as a masculine essence or the masculine essence in a woman. But there are many things that are misguided. And so uh, uh, that, that book is, is a must read. I, I agree with you for both genders. Yes, absolutely. And you also chose another book of his, Waiting to Love, Essays on Life After Spirituality, which has been called his most challenging book yet. Yes. So where we go with our attention is generally towards something that we, that we perceive will give us more comfort or that will console us out of our pain or angst, or we're holding on to something that we feel uh, if we lose, we will suffer. So it's either running away or holding on. That's also the, the uh, uh, sympathetic nervous system, the fight flight. Mm. And we're so conditioned to what's next? What's next? Where am I going? I have to, now I need to do this to get this. Now I need to do that. Now, what David talks about in Waiting to Love is that that's what we're doing. We're waiting to find the, the, the final materialistic 
object that we have now got in our hands and now we can love. Of course, that's not gonna happen. Well, and he talks in such a way, talk about living his reality or living the words that he wrote. Um, and I've seen him, I've gone to his workshops, but waiting to love is, if you are waiting to love, you are not fully alive. How do you become fully alive now? So that's what that book is all about. Mm. I haven't read that one. I've got it on my iPad, but I will read it now. Number five, The Rainbow Bridge, Bridge to Inner Peace and to World Peace by Brent N. Hunter, endorsed by the Dalai Lama and by many New York Times bestselling authors and global luminaries. So we're on a bridge. Humanity is on a bridge. That's the nature of, of that book. Brent talks about what he has done is capsulized. So each page is like an aphorism of wisdom that we can remember to help us on this bridge to a higher vibrational life, a higher love, a life without cruelty and abuse and suffering. We're on the bridge because we know right now there's abuse, cruelty and suffering happening as we speak, unfortunately. So we're on this bridge. And so he, he would just, it, it is so such an easy but powerful book to read. It's a, it reminds us to be in the moment. It reminds us of these tools that we've learned along the way, but in a very, very specific uh, context. So I love that book for that reason. It's, it's just a good bedside, you know, you open it up and, you, and there's a, a teaching, what's in the way is the way. I mean, that alone, mm -hmm. holy moly, what's in the way is the way? You mean I'm not supposed to run away for what I believe are my challenges? Or I'm not, I'm not supposed to fight what I believe is, is not working in my life? I am actually supposed to go towards them and with my heart, discover something completely new. It's an alchemical, that, that's just one page of his book as an example. Yeah, 60 Universal Principles of Bridge Crossing Clarity at your fingertips. That's how it's described. And that book, I mean, it's been a finalist. It's been a gold, silver, bronze medal winner, winner of so many awards and honorable mentions. As I say, I mean, you know, the Dalai Lama obviously loves it too. Can't get much better than that. Yeah, it's a one. No, no. If you can get him to endorse your book, <laughs> you're made. Tied. <laughs> book number six. And this one does appear, you know, quite a few times. A New Earth by Eckhart Tolle. So every, a lot of people have read The Power of Now. Mm. That was his icebreaker, right? Oprah yeah. and got him into mass consciousness. But the new earth, he goes into, he writes believing that we have enough of the higher vibrational consciousness of the now moment in numbers that a new earth is, new earth is emerging. And 
that's why we're doing all of this. We want, I mean, we used to call it the new age, but then that got kind of polluted, that definition. So Eckhart really, he's got things in there that are quite profound that are not in the power of now, but talk about how collective consciousness is raising and signs and how we could participate with that collective consciousness as an individual. Same theme you can see in my own. Yeah, yeah, yeah it's, a, it's a brilliant book. And I think at the time, just before that came out, I published a magazine called Children of the New Earth. Mm. And I think it's the children that are going to carry this forward and create, you know, en masse, that earth that he's talking about. I mean, we're making inroads now, but I think we're going through that kind of pulling apart phase before we then can start rebuilding. Totally agree with you. I want your book. I got it. I didn't know you wrote that. No, well, it was a magazine. Magazine, okay. Yes, yeah, yeah. And it was about the new kids. But I love the title of your next book, And There Was Light. The extraordinary memoir of a blind hero of the French resistance in World War II by Jacques Lusson. I'm chilling. Just here is a young man who was blinded shortly after he was born. And so he was, he couldn't see. And he became, it's an autobiography. He became part of the resistance to um, Hitler's atrocities. And he formed an underground organization to, to help the communities, not only the Jews, but anybody who was being oppressed or sought to be eliminated. And he with his heart and with his intuition, realized that in the darkest of those times, we don't have to speak about them. We know how dark they were. There was light. The light never left. And he writes about that. And it is, a, it is not like everybody dies at the end. It is a victory. It is a declaration of victory in spite of such darkness. And his light and the light of his coworkers, it's just the most remarkable autobiography, one of the most remarkable autobiographies I've ever read. And very, he's innocent, he's not pompous. He's not like, well, I survived and, you know, it is, there was light all along the way. And that was my guiding, uh, my mm. guiding my guidance was that light, my, that inner light. He couldn't see the sun. He couldn't see what light others could, but he had that real light. Phenomenal book. That's um, chosen as one of the 100 best spiritual books of the 20, 20th century by a jury of writers. Beautiful. I'm so glad to hear that. I didn't yeah. know. Yeah. And he was 17 when he decided yeah. to start that group and he recruited 52 boys. Yes. To, to help and, and was in uh, a concentration camp himself, but which yes. many people didn't, you know, from which they did not return. 
Um, yeah, what an extraordinary story. Okay, number eight, I had to go and do some research on this one. <laughs> and I've bookmarked Marshall Leffert's page because I want to go back and read some more. Cosmometry, exploring the hollow fractal nature of the universe. Marshall Leffert's, Leffert's and forwards by Foster and Kimberly Danborn. We've all heard of sacred geometry mm. and how the Milky Way and the way it is twirling open has the same ratio as our own DNA and how snail, the shells of snails have that same ratio, the same phi ratio. This, this is just one example. There's an intelligence throughout the hugeness of the universe all the way down to the tiniest of the universe that is it is the same it is at play at each of those sizes you could say and what he has done is he's made a sacred geometry and the secrets of ratios and uh, abstract mathematics very understandable very readable He's humorous throughout the book. And it just, because I was uh, a student of sacred geometry after my near-death experience in 1979. And, um, you know, read all the books on it, and phi ratio and, and, and advanced math and had a hard time. And, and I wish I had his book in those days because really super clear and how that's relevant to transformation. Transformation is following blueprints of sacred geometry. It's following these blueprints that have relationships built into them. So that's why I recommend that book. It's, it, 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 it just fills that, that uh, amazing topic and, and crosses over into lay terms and uh, it's easy to understand. Great, great, brilliant book. Yes, well, I mean, he, he, he's the co-director, I think, of the Thrive movies. And yeah, there's a piece that I highlighted when I was researching him, that this book uh, explores the hollow fractal nature of the cosmos, presents a new look at age-old questions about the universe we live in and the origin of consciousness with which we are aware of it. I mean, gotta love something like that. <laughs> yeah, right, now books have been written and it gets too, they get too complicated. And mm. then you can't, what, there's too much math or too many yeah. words that are big words, <laughs> but he doesn't do that. He keeps it right, right on a very, uh, a, uh, a level of, that I can understand without having to go to my uh, physics dictionary. So yes, great book. Mm. Number nine, now this is a book that uh, I love and I actually cheered when I saw this book had been published. Couldn't wait to interview Dean Radin. Uh, Real Magic, Ancient Wisdom, Modern Science and a Guide to the Secret Power of the Universe. And for those who don't know, um, Dean is, um, he's the chief scientist for the Institute of Noetic Sciences founded by Edgar Mitchell. And the reason I loved it is because I love to see people who have these credentials, 
you know, writing about these topics because that is going to give them, you know, some uh, respectability amongst everybody who says, oh, no, this stuff is all woo-woo. Dean, I know he's a good friend of mine. He, I know him well. He is absolutely brilliant. Mm. He's up there, like you say. He's got, he's got the credentials. He's a PhD, but he's also been researching forever. <laughs> you know, yeah. he was one of the founding, uh, part of the founding team with Edgar Mitchell when Edgar Mitchell came back from the moon. And if you haven't heard the story, it's, it's wonderful. So Edgar Mitchell walked on the moon and he had this epiphany seeing earth, seeing earth rise. Instead of we see the sunrise or the moon coming up, he saw the earth coming up and he had this epiphany. And he also knew that thought was and still is faster than light. And that there are aspects of our consciousness that are in a category of reality that is greater than the laws of thermodynamics and the way current physicists, conventional physics explain uh, reality. So real magic, he's got proof in there that we can affect somebody in Australia, right now, what mm. our words are doing is affecting mass consciousness and our individuality is, yes, this is my body, you have yours, my personality, I have my gestures that I got from wherever, but there is a whole that's happening similar to Eckhart Tolle's book. The Dean goes right into the experiments and said, this was a result and it was double blind and it was controlled and yeah. it was way beyond the, the uh, 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 chance. And so uh, he's also a funny guy. And there, it, throughout the book is interlaced these, his humor. Mm -hmm. Fun book to read and an important one to read. I smiled when you wrote in your description that he provides the most compelling evidence I've found to validate such human feats as telepathy, clairvoyance, precognition, and psychokinesis. There is somebody else that you know well, and he's a good friend of mine, who also has done that, but nowhere near as readable as Dean, and that's Professor William Tiller. Yes, yeah. Bill yes. has done it, but you know it, it takes a lot of reading to make sense. <laughs> yes, it does. And yeah, Bill. You know, I have a funny story. I'll quit a quick one. I, I'm a. I founded a company with Bill Till, so I and I know him well. He's very, very dear, very, very brilliant. And so he's given, <laughs> there's three of us there at his home and he's, and he's talking about what's, how it's really working, you know? And it's so, you know, the words, he's used to, he's used to lecturing to uh, grad students at Stanford University, mm -hmm. right? So if we're just like, oh my gosh, what is he talking about? So many big, you know, and I would go, Bill, can you speak like you're speaking to a fourth grader? You know, we're fourth graders here. Can you explain it like we're fourth graders? And Bill said, oh, yeah, I think I can do that. And the only thing Bill changed was that he still used the big inverse square values of words more slowly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. 
We all laughed. He said the same. He couldn't. He couldn't do it. He couldn't. He didn't know. We're like, doesn't any? Doesn't everybody know about the reciprocal space of uh, the quantum tunneling aspect? You know, mm -hmm. the reciprocal space of. <laughs> so that's one of my. And he, once we we reflected to build, like Bill, you're saying the same thing, but just slower. It's slower. We're still. We're still in the dark. He laughed. Yeah. Yeah. So Dean has come in and helped us yeah. all. Simplified the language. <laughs> yes, indeed. Yes, and thank goodness he did. Yes, we needed that book. We needed we it did. very much indeed, yeah. Sure. Number 10, Love and God by Maharishi Mahesh Yogi. And of course, you studied at the um, university. I did. I did. And Maharishi was very invested in, in making the transcendental, transcendental meditation technique scientific. You know, it's a very scientific method. It's very mechanical, it's effortless. It doesn't take any kind of religious belief or belief at all, actually. It's an automatic. So that was the, the crux of his um, gift of meditation. But this one book somehow got into the collection of his other books, Love and God, and it's a poem. And when I read that, it's a poem from a man or a man or woman in a higher state of consciousness that is looking at the world as themselves. And that poem goes on through that book. It's not a long book, but it is so beautiful. And you read it and you you feel his state of consciousness and the potential for us all. And that at some point it'll become so obvious that, you know, with this hand fight this hand for food, right? There's food. So I better get it before this hand gets it, right? This mm. is ridiculous. We have the same heart, the collective the core heart is oneness. And all the aspects are, are aspects of that oneness and glorified diversity from that oneness. And his poem talks about that. So this hand will never fight this hand, hurt this hand because it knows that it's gonna hurt itself. And then, but if this hand gets in trouble and it has it's got stuck the first hand to come and help is this hand that is the true nature of being human and we'll we'll get there yeah. crossing the rainbow bridge consciousness raising our children revelations of the heart the new earth yeah. radical transformation but that is your 10th book and tell me how uh how you found out about the university and, and was it difficult to get in there i would imagine there's a lot of competition not in those days they um uh it was 1976 so uh the University was newly founded and newly established. And hold on just a second, because my daughter's knocking at the door. That's fine. You go ahead. We can, just, we can edit that out. 
So I'll just speak to everybody else. If you've got any questions for Robert, you're going to get to the parts now where we're really going to hear about some of the incredible adventures he's had, his near-death experiences, and the decades of research and technologies that he has invented. So pay attention. And if you want to ask any questions, make sure you list them in the chat room. So I think I need to, un you can unmute yourself, I think, Robert. There we go. There yeah, we go. First, first it comes up. Okay. Um, sorry, it just as a quick aside for your, for your listeners, usually I'm not interrupted like that. But two weeks ago, our house burned down and, and we're all safe and we're all healthy. And it's been a really good learning experience and we're, we're closer. And so my daughter is, we're at a hotel right now. The insurance company is, has been very good so far, but, uh, wow, that's a, a it's, it's been an amazing experience. Um, now I lost my trend of thought. So we were talking about how you got into the university, oh, yeah. the Maharishi's University. So in 1976, the university started in Santa Barbara and then they found this university called Parsons College that had gone bankrupt in the middle of Iowa. And, you know, buildings, dormitories, you know, a small private university had gone bankrupt in the 70s and it was just there. And so the, uh, the TEM movement bought that, that property and that's and turned it into Maharishi International University. Now, uh, uh, it was at the time a fully accredited. It was right up there with any college you went to that has full credentials and you could get degrees that are accredited. The one difference about that university is that everyone meditated together. And then we'd go to our physics class or our science class or our physical education. It was very similar to, I went to Cal State Hayward, which is now called Cal State East Bay. But being in the middle of Iowa with a group of students that, um, we're all pioneers, part of a foundation of education that is still going today, that is more holistic, and that it starts with a, transcendent, a transcendental uh, technique. And when you find that unbounded place, then you come back into action and you find and you go back into the boundaries and this cultivates um, higher states of consciousness. And so it was a wonderful, wonderful experience being at MIU. And yeah, I had to apply and show my transfer grade point average from Cal State Hayward. Wow, what an experience. I mean, can you imagine having this connection to everybody? Everybody. Because they're all there for this, you know, to study, yeah. but also for the TM. Yes. So, you know, you've got a, a bond there that you wouldn't have anywhere else. Yes, exactly. And we knew it. We knew it. And it was such a special group. I remember in our dorm, you know, um, these vending machines, you know, where you, you put a quarter in, you get a candy bar back in those 
dollar these days or whatever. So you pull it and you get, you know, Doritos or whatever it is. But it, at MIU, uh, the guy who had these uh, vending machines did an experiment. He just made it, you could just pull it and get what you want. And he had a cup on top of the vending machine for people to pay. Because if we are representing higher consciousness, you know, no, the stealing is not on that agenda. And you know what? He, one of the greatest announcements was he said, I've been doing this for two years and I have 16 vending machines and never have I gone at the end of the week to replenish the things and been shorted. In fact, almost every time there's more money there than would have been had I, you know, mm. activated the machine to put in the 50 cents or whatever it is. Because again, we're, you know, we're, we're together. And why would oh. Doritos or, you know, <laughs> so, so examples of that. And I, mm. and I believe we wanted to show the world that a, a university could be, um, a higher love. And I, I think we did a pretty good job back in those days. Mm. It still happened. And that, of course, is where you ended up playing, performing with the Beach Boys. Yes, the Beach Boys and the Beatles. We've all heard of the Beatles with Maharishi, right? Went to Rishikesh. And that's a very famous story. Well, the Beach Boys were also there, particularly Mike Love was really taken by transcendental meditation. And, and uh, so when he finished his course, he became good friends with George Harrison. And when he finished his uh, meditation course, he thought, what can I do to promote the university? He says, well, how about if we make an album there? The Beach Boys, how about if we make an album there on the universe, at the university, the MIU album? And so, Beach Boys were pretty much in charge of their destiny. They weren't beholden to the record company too much. So they actually built a studio on the campus. And I was playing my saxophone in a, in a band that students had put together, you know, a, a jazz band. And so the Beach Boys, now we knew it, it was a big secret. When, and then they were there, you know. And it was so exciting, like down there, you know, where the, uh, the frats were, you know, was, was the studio that, that they were making a Beach Boy album. And then I remember getting this letter in a little mailbox, student mailbox saying, please uh, come to meet so-and-so at so-and-so. And, and I met one of the producers of the Beach Boys and he said, you know, they say that you're a really good sax player here. And he says, would you like to audition? Because we need a sax player on the, on the album. And it'd be a lot easier to have you because you're already here than flying somebody in from LA. I go, you want me to audition to be on a Beach Boy album? <laughs> and he said, yeah, yeah, you're pretty good. And so I, I got the gig, <laughs> I got the gig. And uh, so I'm on that album and uh, the album didn't do too well, but that Brian Wilson was having difficulties and there's other stories but that's how I got into the Beach Boys and then when the Beach Boys left I actually ran out of money I couldn't 
continue to to go to MIU. But I called up and Michael Love of the Beach Boys said, come on, we, you know, you can go on the road with us. So that's what got my Beach Boy uh, career started. And you actually worked with Mike, didn't you, later? Yeah, because at that time, the mid-70s, late-70s, Brian Wilson, the, the, uh, he composed all the songs, he produced all the songs, he was the key to the Beach Boys. Mm. And he was having difficulties health-wise. And so all the Beach Boy, all the individual uh, Beach Boys, the founding, they were like, oh, we have to start something else because the group's not happening because Brian is very ill. And so Michael Love started a uh, production company that did soundtracks for movies. And he hired me to, it took a couple years, but he hired me to, to be the general manager of that company. And so uh, uh, that was a thrill because our, our next door neighbor was John Travolta and we did the soundtrack for uh, his early movie after, after Saturday Night Fever and other, other movies we did soundtracks for. So I, I got to play my saxophone and also learn management, learn how to, how to uh, project uh, manage and make sure things get done at certain times. Very grounding. Mm. Now, it was while you were in that job, didn't you become quite ill? And then you had a lot more NDEs? Yes. Well, that was my first big one. <laughs> that was my first big one. I, I had been uh, ill most of my life. I was born a blue baby. My mother smoked and drank and, you know, fit in the 50s. And we lived next to a, a chemical plant and I was was sick uh, for most of my life but then it got worse and worse and uh, I started going to the doctors around 1975 74 and the doctors couldn't figure out why I was so ill um, I remember one point the the head of the hospital said you know we've been monitoring you for the past year and you keep getting worse and worse and worse and your chem panels are worse and worse and worse. Your liver's inflamed and got all these symptoms. We don't know what is the cause, but we have to get you in the hospital or you're going to be dead in six months. And I said, no, I'm not going to go to the hospital. And if I'm going to die, I'm going to die out here in Santa Barbara in nature and you know, no offense to the, <laughs> to the conventional doctors, but I really just let go of all that. Not all entirely, I still had a good diet, but it was one morning I, I woke up and I was stumbling around very ill and I fell and um, my heart stopped for about 20 minutes. So that is my, that was my first near-death experience and, and most profound and I wrote a, a book about it. So uh, it changed everything. Love is the power, moving humanity from fear to love, which we've spoken about in a previous interview and is a really good book um, and well worth reading. Um, so 
your NDEs, I mean, you are considered, uh, you know, an expert in your field. Um, Sassel Energy, engineering and its effect on physical systems. And a lot of the information and the technologies you've created, did you get that from your near-death experiences? I did, but it took me years and years. And when I and with the help of Bill Tiller, we were able to use the information that, that was downloaded when I was coming back into my body to create products that help people uh, become more of who they are. Um, most people talk about most near-death experiences. They see a tunnel, they see relatives that had died previous. And, you know, I've read all, I've read many of those near-death experiences. And mine was not like that at, at all. It was when my heart stopped, my breath stopped, and they rushed me to the hospital. I was completely in light. There was nothing but light. So I didn't know what was going on with my body down. <laughs> I was just one with light. And then I became separated from the light. And then I was given a choice to go back. And the, obviously I'm here, so, but my question was, well, do I have a purpose? And the answer was yes. And so I, I, I saw these, there are different dimensions and different domains that, that contain realities that were, are all here holographically here. That's not out there in space, that's all here. So I saw on one level, on one dimension, a bunch of mandalas or symbols. And, and that became the basis of the technology with Bill Tiller's help. And there's 108 of them. And so that's in the book. One of the, I'll, I'll, I'll just add this part to, this, to the story. When, when, I, when I woke up, um, I remember hearing the wind outside, hearing the ocean sounds, hearing the birds. So when I woke up in my body, in my physical body, I was keenly aware of nature. And I realized that this idea of our breath being 50% inhalation and 50% exhalation. You know, that's how we're taught, right? We breathe in, we breathe out, we breathe in, we breathe out. There's a, there's a complete breath. And I said, no, that's not right. And I knew it wasn't right. That's, we are breathing in oxygen from nature and we're breathing out carbon dioxide that goes to the plants. So there's the 100%. It, it, it just, it's like, duh, we learn it in high school that plants have photosynthesis. What they need, we give off. They take carbon dioxide and they turn it into their nourishment and plant grows. And then there, what they, what they don't need for their plant life is oxygen. And so we have this 
this relationship with nature. And then, so I thought this, this is 25%, this is a wholeness. We are every breath reliant on nature. And with every breath, nature is reliant on us. Now, is, have we been exchanging? Have we, how have we been conducting ourselves as humans with this wonderful relationship where we get food and we get oxygen and we get water? And what are we giving back? We're giving back pollution, we're giving back, not all of us, but we're giving back pollution. You could see why Mother Earth is a little upset here, <laughs> you know, <laughs> because she does, a plant doesn't create a poison that we breathe and then have consequences. It's, we create those poisons. And so it was an epiphany of my, uh, oneness with or my connection with nature and humanity's connection with nature and it became the bedrock for a technology that uses the laws of nature in our own physiology and in with our own nervous systems so when you had all of these mandalas in your head was that a bit crazy making like you've got all of this stuff but you don't know what to do with it and you don't know what it means because the near-death experience was so, it changed me so at a, such a fundamental level. And I was in awe of nature. I was in awe of my body. And in the, it was just miraculous what we have here on planet Earth and, and other stars. So the mandalas were, I thought were given to me to, because I said, I because they said I had a purpose. The, the, the voice was, I have a purpose. So I felt it had something to do with my purpose. Turns out only peripherally, these mandalas are found in nature. That book by left cosmology, mm -hmm. cosmology. Mm -hmm. so the, they're in there. They're right in there and he talks about it. So I wrote them down in my journals, which I still have, as many as I could remember. I didn't remember all of them. But then I went, <laughs> so then I went searching for symbols and geometries. And at the Santa Barbara Library, there was a book that was just kind of sitting there waiting for me to see it. Santa Barbara Library, public library called Symbols. And I open it up and I see one of the symbols that I had seen. And it said, the ancient, Vedic religion, this symbol was meditated on to open up the heart. And this symbol was meditated on to open up the throat chakra. And this symbol was, and I'm just, this is at the public library. And I go, the secrets are, are right, we have them. They're not something that has not been discovered. The book was looking at historical, you know, hieroglyphs and cave paintings and so forth. Uh, but I was fresh with these symbols and I knew they had, I was a musician. So if you have a treble clef, musicians know what I'm talking about, five lines and you make the note C. So that is a symbol. If you don't have the consciousness and you just see it, it's like a pretty, it's like a relatively pleasing to look at. 
But if you're Brian Wilson of the Beach Boys, you instantly sing the note. The symbol instantly translates into a tone. And of course, symphonies. And so the symbols are like that. They are symbolic to energies, to vibrations that we all have access to and that we are all using either unconsciously or consciously. And that's where that book comes in, how to mm. use those symbols consciously. And that's where the technology that I co-developed with Bill Tiller comes in, using these frequencies, these vibrations that resonate with our higher consciousness. Just as an aside, I recently worked on a book for a client. Um, and part of this book was looking at the science of light and sound and symbology and sacred geometry. And one of the pieces that I came across that fascinated me was how, I can't remember the name of uh, the person who, a scientist who had translated his wife's DNA mm. into music. Yeah. And now there is a company that will wow. do that for you. They will take a piece of your DNA and they will convert it into a symphony. Isn't that wonderful? See, we, we are evolving. We're catching up to mother nature. We're catching up to the reality of vibrations, good vibrations, right? Yeah, good so, vibrations. And to think that our DNA is singing a song the whole yes. time. Yeah, yes. yeah. That's exactly true. So tell us about some of the technologies you've created, especially... Um, the 108 Heart Plus app. I mean, I had that app and I had it on my phone for a long time after I interviewed you and I loved it. And then, of course, you change phones and things don't come across and I was reminded of it today. Um, so tell us. What we were able to do, we, we had a, products called the Q-Links and we had bracelets and that resonated with our higher consciousness, as I mentioned. Mm. We um, thought, how can we get this to more people? We all have cell phones, right? How many, <laughs> you know, you know, the penny has dropped. We can't go back. Everybody is pretty much attached to their cell phones. So we thought to ourselves, is there a way that we can broadcast these sacred frequencies through the internet to be received by an individual cell phone? So to cut through all the mechanics, we accomplished that. And we conducted a test, a two-year study, controlled, double-blind, with people, Beverly Rubick, Dr. Beverly Rubick conducted this study, and it was published in a medical journal. So she had subjects with cell phones, with the app that was connected to our server, broadcasting these sacred symbols or these life frequencies. And the app that was not connected to that server. And the difference was very, very big. Once the codes, once the study was complete and the codes were un uncoded and the people that had the real app that was connected to our server, their heart rate variability increased by 30%, which is a, a measure of stress. So 
the higher the heart rate variability, the lower the stress. I know it's anti-intuitive, but the, the more your heart is adapting to a moment by moment dynamic, the healthier it is. And if you have a low HRV, heart rate variability, that means you're stressed. And if it really gets low, that means you're going to, to have a heart attack. So she compared it to yoga students who were doing yoga, their heart rate variability went up by 12%. And people who had been meditating for six months, their heart rate variability went up to about 18%. With our app, with this, just people having the app activated on their cell phone and being in the, this, the frequencies are from nature. I know it doesn't seem like, how can you get something from nature through a cell phone? They're all having to do with carrier waves. These are frequencies of nature. They resonate with, ah, this is how life is. This is my home. This is how it feels. Stress goes down, HRV goes up. So we have that. And we've uh, we had a prototype and we're coming out with the app probably this coming August. So I'll keep you all posted and it will be available to everyone. So is this an updated version? Yes, this is an update. First one was a prototype and we've made a bunch of refinements and more on the technical end of things. We had trouble with the Google store and stuff like that. So we've ironed out those wrinkles and we'll have our own website and people can download it and have it on their cell phone very easily. Wow. So, okay, everybody take note of that. Um, I did have it on my phone for a long time and I found it to be invaluable. And then for some reason I lost it and I'll be the first in line, Robert. <laughs> Good. Good. Thank you. Okay. So what are you doing now? I know that you speak an awful lot. You've been speaking um, at Lynn McTaggart's Living the Field Conference in London on field-based technologies. You've done all kinds of, you know, you've spoken at the prestigious Laszlo Institute of New Paradigm Studies. Um, what, are you, what else are you doing? I'm speaking about what I'm doing. And what I'm doing is the same thing when I had that breath, realizing that we are in a relationship with nature. And that relationship can solve problems because the innate intelligence is far superior than our intellectual nervous systems. And I mean, even now, if I cut my thumb and the, and the blood comes out and it starts to heal, we don't know how that, we, don't, we know that the body can, can immediately responds and starts to repair and gets the white blood cells and all these things are just innate. They're part of nature. So what we are doing is looking at nature's intelligence to solve world problems, to solve the even issues of air pollution, and water pollution, and issues that um, we believe can be realized. The, the, the solutions are there with those with open hearts and these downloads or these epiphanies. And we're also wanting to raise consciousness so that the 
rainbow bridge becomes shorter. We can get to the other side more quickly. And as Dean showed in his book, Real Magic, we are all affecting each other all the time. And if you get just a small number of the population that is heart-centered, then somebody somewhere, instead of waking up with the thought of anger, and I wanna go out and kill somebody or abuse somebody because I'm so hurt, that person wakes up with, you know, that no longer feels right. That's what Dean proved. We don't have to find that person and educate them and try to teach them to be a good person. This is a function of raising consciousness. As consciousness raises all the boats, wherever we're at, we are affected. And so that is what I'm doing with some great partners. Are you working with HeartMath? Uh, they are great people. We are, we are, uh, we're, we're good friends. We're not working directly with them, but we, they use our data. We use Simpatico. Data. Yeah, mm. Simpatico, you're right. Yes. Yeah. It's a wonderful organization. So what book are you reading now that's exciting you? I am reading... I'm trying to think of another book. I, I'm reading about fire because I want to know, because when we had this fire last week, um, I thought my father-in-law was, was, <laughs> was, I'm laughing because there's a happy ending. I thought he was trapped in the garage. And I thought I heard knocking on the garage door. It was electric garage because I couldn't get in and there's flames. And I, I thought I heard him knocking on the garage door, you know, like calling out for help. And it freaked me out. And I was ready to, to go break the windows on the garage and crawl in and save him until the fire. And so I'm reading a book on fire. And what was happening was that it was just, when you have a fireplace, there's crackling, right? There's cracking, you hear it. Campfire, nice, crackle, crackle, crackle. What is causing those crackling sounds? I'm reading a book on that. <laughs> and what's the answer? Well, well, when when carbon, it it's when fire burns, there's little mini explosions of energy that that when a piece of wood is is combusted, and and it it. it releases energy it's a mini explosion those are the pops and so that's what i was hearing it wasn't popping it was just so loud because it wasn't like a campfire it was the whole garage was on fire so i'm just i just like didn't know what you know and and no offense to the fire the fire fighters were fantastic but he couldn't answer me technically he just said it's like a fireplace you know you hear the pops but I wanted to know why the pops. So I'm in the middle of that book. I'll, I'll keep you posted. There must, be, there must be something there. I would okay. think that at some point is going to grab your attention and say, ah, we could do something else with that. Exactly. Well, that's why I'm reading it. It was yeah. it's like, I've never even thought these things, there's all kinds of things happening in nature, you know, and lightning. Yeah. Does that happen? And uh, so the many, energy in those explosions. Yes. 
there's, yeah. there's, there's, in a piece of wood, there's untapped energy that in the right circumstances releases heat. So that's, we know that, but I wanted to know the mechanics of it. Yeah. What happens mm -hmm. to the carbon? What happens to the oxygen, you know? So that's yeah. what I'm reading. <laughs> Fascinating. Well, if you find, if you get any um, epiphanies or any new ideas for inventions, let me know. I'm I intrigued. Will. I will, Candy. Robert, it has been such a delight to talk with you. Okay, final word before we close. Your keywords: husband and father, inventor, saxophone player, author, believer in higher love. So let's talk briefly about that last one because the time we're living in now is a, you know, we've kind of touched on it earlier. It is a an incredible time. It's a time of great collapse and destruction, as well as, you know, paving the way for new beginnings. And um, But how confident are you that we can get through this period where the, we're seeing so much polarisation, so much anger, so much hatred, so much fear? How confident are you that we can get through this and move into that new earth? I am completely confident. Because I've seen changes with people, with real society, there's, there's symptoms of real change. And it's taken the form of chaos, it's taken the form of confusion and polarity. But one of the things that uh, one of our founding fathers, Benjamin Franklin, said is that what what will weaken a democracy is apathy, is people that just are believing that everything is okay. People are not apathetic anymore. They are responding to global issues. And this is a sign that consciousness is starting to question the status quo. Is it can is this all there is? Can we create a better society? We see it in the news, but we I'm I'm paying attention to those messages and to those uh, phenomenon that are holistic and that people realize that when we help another, we are actually helping ourselves, and that there is a collective that can be. Uh, tapped into for the good of the collective. So I really am optimistic. And I, and my, my daughter's here and she's 15 and she is an amazing horseback rider and knows how to commune with wild animals. Mm. And that is something that's been lost in society. So I'm seeing this as a sign in my own family. Mm. So I'm, I'm I'm excited to be alive. I'm very happy that I came back in 1979 and we're having this conversation. We're gonna leave it here, Robert Williams. Thank you for sharing your 10 best spiritual books. Please tell us which websites you want people to go to to find out more about you and your work and your products. Right now it's www.quantumcodetechnology.com. Quantum code technology.com.
Well, that's it, Robert. Thank you. I will... And thank you to everybody at home for joining us. And uh, you can go to the website, sedgebeer.com, click on the No BS Spiritual Book Club tab, and you will find Robert's 10 best list and his written descriptions there. Thank you, everybody, and enjoy your day. Goodbye. Now.